Open our lips, O Lord, that our mouths might proclaim your praise. Amen. Many of you have attended and some of you have heard us talk about a festival called the Wild Goose Festival that takes place every summer up in Hot Springs, North Carolina. In trying to describe it, depending on your generation, it's some kind of combination of like Lollapalooza meets Jesus and the church, or if you're more white-haired, Woodstock meets the church. It's this festival of a few thousand folks who gather up there in the grounds of Hot Springs probably 80% of whom sleep in tents or some kind of thing in the campground there, about 20% of us who find motels in the area with air conditioning. And it's this festival with tents that are not just where people sleep, but tents where people gather for music and tents where people gather for spirit conversations, where people gather to experience different spiritual practices, and, and it's just all these folks and we were kind of in two general kinds of camps. There's, there's the evangelicals who have discovered mystery and don't know what to do about that. And there's the liturgical types like us who find we're suddenly comfortable talking about Jesus and trying to figure out how to deal with that. And what is a certain shared thread, theme, vein that runs through the folks who gather there is a deep compassion and conviction about how is it that we live in the world? And how is it that our faith is just inherently intertwined with all of that, feeds it, speaks to it, informs it? And a few years ago, there was a Lutheran pastor who was speaking one afternoon, a woman named Nadia Boltz Weber. And if you have never seen Nadia Boltz Weber, she is not what well, she was not your parents' Lutheran pastor, let's put it that way. What gives it away immediately is the spiked hair, the tattooed, covered, powerlifting arms that she exhibits. I'm not making that up. She will tell you that she loves powerlifting because when she goes to the gym, no one cares who she is. And she just talks to people about powerlifting, and she gets to be Nadia, not the Lutheran pastor. And after she had talked for a while, a person went up for the question and answer period, and they said, um, they said, I am this lifelong evangelical who has loved my tradition, but for about the last six months, I've been going to an Episcopal church, and I don't know why. But I keep getting called back there, and I'm, I'm conscious you're a Lutheran pastor, you're a liturgical type, and I'm wondering if you could help me understand why I keep coming back. And about halfway through her response, I wish I had pulled out my phone and videoed it because it was incredibly concise, eloquent, theological, sociological, anthropological, historical. But in essence, she said, I think the reason the Eucharist, the bread and the wine, are so compelling to us is because despite all our attempts, we know we can't co-opt it. She said, you think about the history from the beginning of the church, the time of Jesus. You think of all the kingdoms, all the empires, all the tyrants. You think of, of all the plagues. You think of anything that's come, the, the mind-boggling opening times of history and all that has gone on. And this thing has gone through it every chapter. You know, the church has done some amazingly unhelpful screwing up of things for 2,000 years. And we haven't been able to screw this one up. 
because somehow it's bigger than us. Somehow the basic formula, we might have changed words here or there, of gather the people, tell the stories, receive the elements, and hear what they tell you about you and about your neighbor and about God, and then go out, go out the doors and live. And she said, I think that's its power. We can't control it. And it's compelling and naming for us. Or as Jesus would say, those who eat this bread abide in me and I abide in them. Last week when Carol was preaching, she reminded us about the people who had been fed, that that 5,000 people gathered. She reminded us now again that we're in week five of bread and flesh talk. You still have one more week of bread gospels, don't? Just keep your seatbelts on. And she reminded us that that first week was the feeding of the 5,000. That's the context from which all these next five weeks are taking place, that image. And she reminded us of those folks who gathered and then had that experience of bread. And then the next day they start chasing Jesus, saying, give us some more bread. And he says, you missed it. It's not the bread, it's me. And they get a little uppity and a little testy and say, oh, it's about you. Well, then show us another sign. And when she was saying that, I was thinking how many times I've preached on that text and I've thought judgingly of those folks about another sign. You were there. You saw it. You experienced it. And how faithless are you to come back and say, all right, prove yourself once again. Just one more sign. But then she went on to say, and in fact, are we really that much different than them? Are we not really like the same? We want some kind of sign that will tell us that things aren't falling apart. Some kind of sign that when I'm watching the news and I'm watching institutions and values being trampled on, that indeed it's not all going to fall apart, that what we believe will prevail. And when she said that, I went, oh, okay, yeah, I am them. (laughs) Come on, Jesus, just one more sign. I'm looking around and I'm not sure. It was my brother said to me years ago, he said, so if Jesus took away the sin of the world, then what's all the stuff around us? <laughs> One more sign, Jesus. And Jesus says, no. There's no sign. What you have is me. What you have is my flesh. That's all. There's not going to be any signs that are going to tell you things are going to be fine. You want certainty? You want to know that everything's going to hold together? Go somewhere else. There are places that will promise you that. But Jesus, as Carol said, didn't give us a sign. Jesus simply gave us his flesh, his body, his real flesh. I mean, if you listen to that gospel reading today, I don't know how many people after 9 o'clock said, that's kind of cannibalistic, isn't it? Right? I mean, how many times did he say, eat my flesh? No sign, but flesh. And so as I think about this just human capacity to want that sign, I started thinking that we in the church perhaps have never fully, fully, fully appreciated the viral infection of Constantine making faith the official state religion. 
because in that moment, he began a gestational process that has grown and grown about the church and power, about the church and prevailing, about the church and dominion, and the church and control, that somehow theology, God, Jesus, is about us overcoming things. And if something doesn't prevail, then something's wrong, and it's for either us or you or God. And we're not remembering that Jesus didn't tell us we'd get a sign. Jesus said flesh. But again and again, we have co-opted what the church is all about. And we think somehow dominion tells us that faith is going well. And Jesus says, I will not tell you it will prevail. You do get flesh. And I think that's perhaps why for six weeks the evangelist and the gospel and the lectionary is pounding this into us. Flesh, 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 flesh. This is what you get. This is what you have. Don't get sucked into something that says there's some sign that says we will prevail. Don't get sucked into something that says, here's the proof that doggone it, our day's coming. Here's the proof we'll just elect the right people. We'll just do whatever. There's another thing that seems to be going on in John's gospel here with this flesh talk. It's as if John is trying to emphasize again and again, do not over-spiritualize things. Do not over-spiritualize Jesus. Do not over-spiritualize other people. Because when you start getting into over-spiritualizing and seeing that, you know, just like the power, there's this hierarchy that goes on, and some people are just a little more spiritual than, I mean, isn't Jesus really a little more spiritual than you and me? Even though he doesn't say that, ever. You will do greater things than me, but that was just to make us feel good. And don't you know, I mean, how many times has the church succumbed to that sense that there are certain groups of people or certain people that just seem more spiritual? And where that leads is clergy scandal. And it's not just the Catholic Church, the evangelicals, the, everybody has it. Because somehow we start thinking some group is just a little bit more spiritual and we wouldn't think of holding them accountable and then we work about keeping our power because we have forgotten that it's about flesh. An inherent reality that Jesus says, I am in you and you are in me now, just as God is in me and I am in you. And those who eat my flesh abide in me and I abide in them, period. All human flesh is the complete container, holder, if you will, of the fullness of God. You want a sign, go somewhere else. But what's here is human flesh. You want to be in the presence of the fullness of God, then look right next to you at the person in the pew. And look for a sign. Look there, and look there, and look there. That's what Jesus is trying to say. That's what the evangelist is trying to make to us Eat this flesh. It's gritty. It's real. It's already here. That's from which you approach the world. So I'm trying to comprehend the sense that, that the Spirit of God just is. 
It's not something we work for and that some people just seem to attain better or, you know, and all that stuff that separates us. But that the Spirit of God is in us. That our flesh, not how do we get away from our flesh, but our flesh right now is the complete container of the divine. It just is. When I contemplate that just isness, if you will, it makes me think of a time when in my senior year of high school, my parents had the bad taste of moving us out of Chicago down to Atlanta. And I did my best to kind of get into this culture and learn things Southern. My accent, my dialect was not helping things, but that's another story. But one weekend, some friends, we, we decided to go up camping up in North Georgia. And after we'd been on this trail by a lake for a while, that Sunday morning we got up to go to breakfast. And we went to this place in this little town, one of those classic little diners, you know, that has the chrome tables, has the, has the vinyl tablecloths that are every bit as sturdy as that forever damp towel that the servers have to wipe up whatever sins you have committed on that table. You know, well, you know what I'm talking about, where they still call you honey and darling. And that's almost, parenthesis, when they call you honey and darling, is that like the Eucharist when they're reminding you who you are? Okay, I'm sorry, close that parenthesis. <laughs> You're beloved, darling. Okay, I'll stop. So we're at this restaurant, and, and I look and I make my order. Some scrambled eggs, some hash browns, some bacon. And the server comes to the table, and there's that great plate. It's got scrambled eggs, hash browns, bacon, and this lump of white stuff. Yeah, Yankees really don't deal with lumps of white stuff. I'm trying to figure out what it is, and I'm knowing that my accent has already betrayed me to the server that I am not from around here. And I'm trying to find some nice way of saying, what in the heck is this? So I, as generously as my mama and daddy taught me, I'd say, excuse me, but I, this is wonderful, um, but I'm not sure what this is, and I didn't order this. And she looks at me with this look that is maybe one part the compassion of Christ, one part a tent revival preacher about to convert one more northerner who thought they could move to the south and just bring all their northerness with them. And she looked at me and she said, um, those are grits, and you don't order them, they just come. (laughs) Sisters and brothers, the fullness of God in our flesh just comes. We don't order it. We don't work for it. We don't achieve it. It just is already. It's part of the DNA that we all share. The miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 wasn't how many loaves got created that day. It was that 5,000 people sat down and realized they were connected through their human flesh and the flesh of one who just said, what do we have today? Let's see how far it'll go. Those who eat this bread abide in me and I in them. If you feed on this bread, you'll never be hungry. This bread cannot be co-opted because for generation after generation, period after period, empire after empire, this has lasted. And try as hard as we have, we can't co-opt it, change it, because it just is. 
And there's a power in receiving this bread. There's a power in receiving it as a body as we watch and share with one another as we receive these elements, as we share the stories of how we have come through one thing and another, not prevailing or dominating, but being with one another, seeking Christ in all people as we vowed last week, finding the dignity in each human being and in ourselves. We have the stories of the shared bread that keep us coming back. I mean, if you think about it, in any time of your life, any time of our collective life, when there has been great loss, were we moved because someone brought a poster that said, God is in control? Were you not? We were moved because of those friends or people who were mature enough to simply sit with us in their human flesh while they received our human flesh in its fullness. You want a sign, go elsewhere. What saves us is not dominion and power. What saves us is our flesh. What saves us is when we seek Christ in all persons, including in ourselves. Because when we seek and choose to abide in one another, when we seek to see God and experience God in our flesh right now, not when it gets better, when we practice that, we are never hungry.